Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining us. Um, every day is a historic day because we're alive. Um, but it's historic because uh, things happened at, at, in these times. Um, I'm sure none of you were alive in 1963. Um, but 1963 was a very special year <laughs> for many reasons. Um, one reason it was very special was because yesterday was 50 years since the March on Washington. The March on Washington was a um, very significant event of the organizing of the African-American community for civil rights. Of course, many rabbis and many Jews were involved. And um, this is a very significant time in the country for allyship and what it looked like to organize on that next level, to have not nonviolent attempts for change that actually were successful. And so I'm thinking very much about that today, 50 years since the March on Washington, and how today we need to continue to build bridges, continue to cultivate empathy, continue to come together and march together, and um, and uh, and continue to uh, not only advocate for for other minority groups because we hope they'll advocate for us, but do it because it's right. Do it because it's right, not because it's popular that we stand together in the world uh, up for each other. So that's one thing I'm thinking about today. The other thing that's significant about 1963 was that it's 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. Um, the Yom Kippur War was... Um, Wait a minute. Um, I said something wrong. I said something wrong. It's 60 years since the March on Washington. Sorry about that. That was 1963. Now, the Yom Kippur War was 1973. That's 50 years. And um, the Yom Kippur War, as I'm sure none of you were alive as well, uh, in 1973 was when on Yom Kippur, um, the Israelis were surprise attacked. Golda Meir was uh, unprepared. Moshe Dayan advised her to be unprepared. Another advisor advised her to be prepared, but she listened to Dayan a little bit more. And not blaming them, Ma Malcolm Gladwell recently wrote an article actually explaining that there was no reason they would have thought this was any diff anything different than other things they had seen. Uh, there's no reason to blame them. Uh, there was nothing. There was nothing abnormal, even though they, to their grave, took the guilt. By the way, if you haven't seen the new movie Golda. There's a new movie out called Golda in the um, on the big screen about the Yom Kippur War that tries to, um, you know, improve her image in 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 what happened in that uh, in that war. In any case, this Yom Kippur will will be 50 years since that, and uh, and we continue to be affected by that situation. 
Of course, Kissinger wanted to hold back um, Israel. I mean, Israel had major casualties, but once they were they they were moving forward on Egypt, Kissinger held them back because he felt if Sadat was shamed or overthrown, that the Soviets would take over. Nonetheless, that process also led a few, just a few years later, maybe uh, five years later, if I recall, in, in uh, 78, I think, um, you know, peace with Egypt. So um, anyways, it's an interesting, uh, uh, it's an interesting time of year, thinking about the March on Washington, think about the Yom Kippur War, and so much else that happened in 73 and 63. But we're now we're going to turn our attention to Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was uh, hundreds of years before all of that, but one of the most significant philosophers um, in modernity and in history, for sure. A game changer, really a game changer. So let's start with a poll question. Which of these moral formulations speaks to you most? Option one, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Option two, don't do what is hateful to you to others. Option three, only do that which you think everyone should do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do what is hateful to you, to others. Only do that which you think everyone should do. Which of those um, resonates for you most? Okay, let's see our results. Very interesting. Love your neighbors yourself, 9%. Don't do what is hateful to you, to others, 82%. And only do that which you think everyone should do, 9%. So, love your neighbor as yourself is the Torah. You should love your, your neighbor as yourself. Don't do what is hateful to you, to others, is the Talmud. It's Hillel's twist on this. Um, he says, basically, says, you know, the convert says, convert me on one foot. Shammai says, get out of here. And Hillel says, all right, here's what the Torah is about. Don't do what's hateful to, uh, to, uh, to you, to others. And the rest is commentary. Go learn it. And only do that which you think everyone should do is, as we're going to see, uh, um, a version of what Kant is kind of talking about over here. All right. So Hillel, you're the winner. Hillel for the win. Hillel beats Kant and, be, and, beats, uh, <laughs> and beats the Torah. Okay. So friends, what is the most important rule for humans to live by? Is it ever okay to lie? Which is more moral, a big government or a small one? Born in Königsberg, Prussia, Immanuel Kant was raised under the influence of pietistic Lutheranism. But when he grew up, he witnessed the world's increasing secularism, and he saw a need to replace the authority of religion with an authority of reason. In his personal life, he lived as somewhat of a hermit. Though he was on occasion sociable, he, really, he never left his hometown his whole life, and he was never married. We've looked at lots of philosophers who've had to flee all over and travel all over. That seems to be the, a common story we've talked about, philosophers fleeing. But Kant was an anomaly in that he always studied and always taught in the same place. Even when the Prussian king banned him from teaching, he waited and returned to his post after the king died. Seeing the changing tides around religion, Kant made epistemology the study of how we know what we know, and morality, the primary focuses, focus of, of his work. Religions, Kant believed, were flawed, but they did the important work of promoting ethics. As such, Kant sought to somehow salvage the ethical emptiness of the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason by imbuing it with a moral philosophy. Okay, got that so far? 
He thinks uh, religion is kind of empty, but at least they're the place where people are talking about ethics. And so now that religions are dying and secular reason is emerging, how do we also devoid of ethics? How do we keep the passion of ethics alive without the bad parts of religion as modernity emerges? Kant's attempt to fill the ethical void caused by devaluing of religion was called the categorical imperative. Kant wrote in his groundwork for the metaphysic of morals. So there is only one categorical imperative, and this is it. Act only on the maxim, though which you can at the same time will, that it should become a universal law. What does he mean by that? When deciding how to live your life, Kant was saying, you should imagine what the world would be like if everyone were to live that way. Okay? So the next choice I'm about to make today in my life, I should say, I should only do this if I think everyone should do this. Right? So you might say, ah, it's okay if I cut in line. Who cares? But what would it look like of a world where everyone cut in line? You might say, like, I can kind of cheat the store a little bit. I can take this little thing. Big corporation's not going to notice if I got a 75-cent object. Say, well, what would the world look like if everyone did that? Right? And so, too, with every choice we make, he said, only do it if you think everyone should do it. So for Jews, this, of course, is nothing new. Hillel is recorded as saying over 2,000 years ago, as you all, as most of you voted for, when a convert asks for a quick summary of the Torah, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto another. That is the entire Torah, and the rest is interpretation. Go study. Similarly, Rabbi Akiva identified Leviticus 19.18, as we discussed, love your fellow as yourself, as the fundamental principle of the Torah. So Rabbi Akiva says, this is in response to a metaphor presented in the Jerusalem Talmud. If a person is cutting food and accidentally cuts their own hand, would it make sense for one hand to take revenge on the other hand? It's no different with people. The Jerusalem Talmud teaches, once we realize that we're all just parts of the same body, right? If we view ourselves as different, then I want to I show revenge to you. But if we realize we're really just one body as humanity, then it makes no sense to cut my other hand because you cut my first hand. In the Middle Ages, Maimonides expressed a similar sentiment when he wrote in his Laws of the Repentant, Laws of Repentance over here in the Mishnah Torah. Throughout the entire year, a person should always look at themselves as equally balanced between merit and sin. And the world is equally balanced between, between merit and sin. If, the, if they perform one sin, they tip the balance and that of the entire world to the side of guilt and brings destruction upon themselves. On the other hand, if one performs just one mitzvah, they tip their balance and that of the entire world to the side of merit and bring deliverance and salvation to themselves and others. So what is the Rambam saying here, Maimonides saying? Maimonides is saying that we should view the world as very precarious. There's a tenuous kind of balance. And at any moment, I am both good and bad. The world is foot of, filled of good and bad. And our very next choice to be loving versus hateful, to be kind versus cruel, will actually tilt the balance in terms of the type of person I am, in terms of the type of world we live in. Kant and the Jewish tradition would agree that while we tend to think of our actions as significant, there is so much good and bad done all throughout the world. And if we were to collectively consider the impact of our behavior, we could make the world vastly better. In this respect, Kant rejected libertarianism, 
which tends to emphasize the importance of human freedom over and above all else. While there is a powerful appeal to seeking a kind of radical liberty from government and communal responsibility, the categorical imperative implies that we all have a duty to one another. More important than our freedom is our duty. Kant was the innovator of deontological ethics, or ethics based in the notion of duty. Here's, here's how Britannica explains it. In deontological ethics, an action is considered morally good because of some characteristic of the action itself, not because the product of the, of the action is good. Deontological ethics holds that at least some acts are moral, morally obligatory, regardless of their consequences for human welfare. Descriptive of such ethics are such expressions as duty for duty's sake. Virtue is its own reward, and let justice be done, though the heavens fall. In short, we do the right thing, not because it is bound to have a positive impact, that would be utilitarianism, but because doing the right thing is what we need to do, deontology. Huge difference. It may sound like a small difference. Doing something by principle, doing something by responsibility and duty versus doing something because of the result it will have. What a powerful tool this can be against despair. So often we worry about what the point of trying to do a mitzvah even is. And here Kant shares the Jewish value that the good thing must be done out of obligation. We hope that the right results will follow, of course, but we can worry about that after we do the right thing. Because of the similarity between Kant's notion of the categorical imperative and the Jewish notion of mitzvah, many Jews in Germany felt a kinship with Kant's thought. As a result, it would go on to have a great influence on Jewish thought in the 19th and 20th centuries. When Kant applies his ethics to politics, he argues against the idea that freedom is something that is guaranteed by the government. Rather, we are free when we embrace ethics. By submitting one's, but submitting oneself to the categorical imperative, one is liberated from the selfish interests that so often determine how we act and how society functions. This is a new read on liberty and society. Freedom is not the absence of government, but the acceptance of obligations. Ah, so we may hear from Axpes of the far right today, we want liberty from government, right? Return the freedom of the people, of uh, 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 free from the oppression of the government, right? Kant says, ah, uh -uh. freedom is not absence of government, absence of policing, absence of taxation, right? Rather, freedom, this is counterintuitive, is the acceptance of obligations. Waking up free doesn't mean I'm just going to walk around the world in my underwear doing whatever I want, drinking daiquiris all day. <laughs> freedom means I am obligated to do good in the world. What freedom? What are you talking about? I'm obligated to do free? I'm obligated to do good? That's freedom? Ah, we're only going to operate on our animalistic instincts if, if freedom means just do whatever you want. Once we accept obligation, then we're free to live in the realm of the good. It should be unsurprising that those who have sought to use philosophy as a part of their traditional Jewish thought have been eager to use the work of Kant. 
Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, the quintessential modern Orthodox thinker of the 20th century, had Kant at the center of his model of ethics. Kant can be a hero for those who want to make our moral responsibilities more robust and want to build a religious ethos on reason. Now, let me, let me remind us, Judaism by and large does not use the language of rights. We're not interested in human rights. What is Judaism interested in? Human obligations. Now, of course, implied within obligations are that there's a recipient who has rights. But rights are passive. Obligations are active. Rights are about entitlement. Obligations are about responsibility. And so rather than, uh, although we don't reject the notion of human rights today, we can embrace the idea, even though it's foreign to the traditional Jewish language. Judaism is framed not around um, what is owed to me, but rather what I owe to others. It is framed not around passivity of give me my right that I deserve, but around obligations. I must go ensure other people's rights. The duty. While the Torah and ancient sages set an important groundwork for how Jews think about ethics today, Kant gives us a way to universalize ethical constructs. And Judaism is sympathetic to the notion that changing the world is going to happen from the human choices we make. And Kant arrived at his morality by placing a value on the human being that in Judaism we can accept as a shared value. Kant wrote in his treatise on morals, sorry, this paragraph is a little long-winded, rational beings are called persons because their nature already marks them out as ends in themselves, i.e. not as to be used merely as means which makes such a being an object of respect and something that sets limits to what anyone can choose to do. Such beings are not merely subjective ends whose existence as a result of our action has value for us, but are objective ends, i.e. things, whose existence is an end in itself. It is indeed an irreplaceable end. You can't substitute for it something else to which it would be merely a means. If there were no such ends in themselves, nothing of absolute value could be found. And if all value were conditional and thus contingent, no supreme practical principle for reason could be found anywhere. So this idea that other people exist not to be used by us, but for their own irreplicable inherent value, sounds like something straight from the modern Hasidic, Hasidic influence philosopher Martin Buber with his notion of I and thou. This is because Kant had, had a direct influence on Buber and on all German philosophy after himself. However, I don't think we as Jews should uncritically accept the black and white obligations of the categorical imperative, of course, if only because Kant conceived of them as absolutes in a way that doesn't accord with the gray areas embraced by Jewish law. Judaism is all about the gray area, not the black and whites. For instance, the categorical imperative would say that you could never lie. Because if everyone lied, the world would fall apart. Oh, categorical imperative says, how can I lie in this moment? If I can lie in this moment, then everyone can lie in this moment. And, and then we're all doomed. Kant even went so far as to argue that if a murderer comes to one's door seeking to kill someone inside your home, one is ethically obligated not to lie if they ask um, if, if someone is there. However, Jewish law is clear. 
that there are times when it's not only permissible, but even required to lie. If someone in Nazi Germany is hiding a Jew in their home, we know that the value of saving a life in this case outweighs the value of truth. We've talked about this so many times. How many values matter more than truth? In, in um, Jewish values are pluralistic, meaning there are many and not one outweighs the others. We have to balance the values against each other. So friends, to conclude, and still the goal of Jewish ethics remains to tip the scale of the world toward the good. When we consider, for example, our obligations to combat climate change or to feed and house people, we can take inspiration from Kant by using the categorical imperative to give us hope in the face of seemingly insurmountable challenges. It doesn't necessarily matter whether we're able to complete the work of achieving justice. We must do good deeds simply because if everyone were to do good deeds, the world would be much better off. And if everyone were to ignore the problems of the world, our societies would collapse. Someone today could look at climate change and say, we're doomed. So eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing we can do. Let's just scream into the abyss of, of um, you know, of performative actions, of virtue signaling to say, hey, I'm on the right camp, but really do nothing. But instead, even when we're cynical about the consequences being changed, we do the good because we're bound to do the good because we have a duty to do the good. Okay, dear friends. That is our introductory comments about Immanuel Kant. And I would love to hear from you on your agreements, disagreements, tangential thoughts that move us in interesting directions we never could have dreamt of on the Yom Kippur War and the March on Washington and what you ate for breakfast today. Okay, hi, Aglaya. Okay, I didn't eat breakfast, so that's probably why. Yeah, I also skipped breakfast today. I'm a little behind you. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So I'm not... Okay, so I promised you that I would not yell at Immanuel Kant today, and I'm going to stick to that promise. I'm not going to yell at Immanuel oh, Kant. Kant would be very proud that you're keeping your promise. Yeah, okay, for yelling at him for, never mind. Anyway, um, but I just wanted to throw this out there. It's not to push back, but to also like just throw this out there, like maybe when we're thinking about categorical imperative, there might be a little bit more to it, okay? So this is from the Critique of Practical Reason and just everyone bear, like bear with me on this. Okay. I'm crazy enough that I was dealing with a bunch of preschoolers one day and I had to download the critique of pure reason. Okay. That's my love hate relationship with Immanuel Kant. Okay. So two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence. Um, the more often and more steadily one reflects on them, the starry heavens above me and the Laurel moral law within me. Now, from what I'm kind of looking at though, with Immanuel Kant though, the moral law you know, like, well, first of all, there are heavens above you, though. There is something above you, though. But there is a moral law that is also already within you. So when it comes to things about, like, well, if you are lying, well, there is, like, I guess within all people, a sense that, well, in this case, am I lying because I'm protecting someone from a Nazi, you know, that might be, or, you know, like, I mean, just stuff like that. And I was trying to explain to someone one time, the, the wisdom of the Torah is already within all of us anyway. But, and so consequently though, I'm kind of looking at it though, if we're talking about the categorical imperative, um, what if, if everyone just said, well, I'm not going to lie because, well, you know, I mean, so there's a little bit of, I guess, leeway with, you know, I don't know if you're, if it, you're going to agree with this or not, though, but I think that there's a little bit of leeway with the categorical imperative to say, 
But there's also a moral law that's within me that says, um, no, I'm obliged to save someone's life, even if it's at the risk of my own life. You know, I don't know. Great, great. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So what Galea is moving us in a fascinating direction of thinking about natural morality and the notion that um, human beings, it's unclear through what capacity, know right and wrong innately. As, whether we call it conscience, we call it reason, we call it um, some sort of ethical intuition. There's lots of pages spilled over what, what natural morality is ultimately about. That essentially, you don't need to educate someone towards what's right and wrong, but rather enable them to listen to the uh, inward. Just as, as, as Kant said, as Aglaia quoted, um, that the two things that can inspire us to do good, one are the are the stars above, seeing how big the world is, and the other is the depth of our own kind of moral intuition already within us. That, that raises fascinating questions for us. Do you think if someone was raised relatively in, in, um, in isolation in the woods and someone was educated in 21st century Western ethics, they would more or less come to the same conclusions that stealing is wrong and murder is wrong and, you know, fill in the blank with hundreds of other, you know, general ideas we have today? Um, or is it, are, are our ethics so deeply impacted by our socialization and our, and our education and our cultural influences? So much to say there. But, and yes, um, Aglaia, it raises a profound question here as well around whether, um, how the categorical imperative shifts in its subjectivity based around the notion of, um, our own kind of personal um, moral understanding as compared to what we think everyone should ultimately do. And Kant struggled with that. Kant struggled with what the common person could access. And yet he said, my gosh, if, if, if the texts of Christianity are not going to inspire Europe to be good people anymore, um, then what are we going to do? And so we're going to need to bolster people's moral reasoning capacity people's ability through education to come to the same conclusions those Christian texts wanted us to get to that people are less interested in. Yeah, they're going to show up at Sunday mass because everybody in the community does, but the mass doesn't do anything to make them a good person. And so we're going to have to find some new way to do that given the secular the, the secularization of our societies. Is it going to work? Okay. Interesting point. Interesting questions. Okay. Toby and then Matthew. Well, I'm going to take you all to, uh, Law School 101. Great. The first, the first case law that we discovered uh, as new freshmen in law school was a case uh, concerning cannibalism. Okay, why is that pertinent to this discussion? Well, the discussion radiates around this innate natural law. Uh, and of course, the question that my professor asked was, is there such a thing as natural law or natural ethics, call it what you want to call it. But the bottom line is, after much discussion and people raising their hands saying, well, I think in this situation, cannibalism was fine. Uh, and then other people saying cannibalism is never fine. You can imagine what ensued. But the bottom line is um, the discussion ended in our agreement. Uh, the people act with their own best interests at heart, which is rather a sad um, ponderance when you think about it, because if that is true, 
then people are only going to act kindly when it benefits them. And that is a horrendously awful, uh, if you think about the potential outcome of all that, um, I'm not sure I believe that people are innately, that be, people behave, I don't know about the soul and all that, but that people will behave innately correctly because of something inside of them that stops them from doing bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thank Toby, you. <laughs> Toby, a follow-up question. Is, is the reason in, in American law that we hold minors less accountable and um, uh, for crimes because we assume they don't know right and wrong the way an adult does? There, well, in Arizona, I can only speak in Arizona, but in Arizona, you can't indict uh, someone under 14 years old. Well, no, under eight years old for murder, uh, even in the juvenile system. Of course, in the juvenile system, the, the punishments is considerably more focused on um, treatment and re-entry into the community than if you, but if you're 14 and you kill someone, you can be indicted in the adult system in Arizona. Uh-huh. But, so, but, but punishing a 17 year old differently than a 19 year old, is, no. is, is any part of that assumption, whether they know what's right and wrong? That's the mitigation part of it. And they, it, while the prosecution can indict you and say, oh, this is a terrible person. They meant to do horrible harm and blah, blah, blah. It's up to the defense attorney to say, well, you know, this, this young man, his brain was only half formed. And uh, you make the argument. And whether whether a judge buys it or not, it depends on the circumstances, obviously. Right. OK. And so, too, if someone has intellectual deficiencies of some type. And they're 50 years old as such, they're held less accountable. It's a mitigating factor. So it's very interesting. That's a better case. That's a better case, Rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So thinking about uh, about how the law accounts for, does this person know the difference between right and wrong? And what is our assumption about the common person also? Um, Does the common person know that it's right and wrong? Um, And how does that affect the way we think about our own moral agency? based upon the society we think we live in. Um, Just as Kant would say, we should raise the bar for ourselves because that will raise the bar for others. We also know that lowering the bar uh, for ourselves will lower the bar for others around us as well. Um, That that social influence on on our moral behavior. Okay, thank you, Toby. Matthew. Yeah, I was just gonna make one comment. You made reference to Kant that religion was no longer keeping people good. I'm not sure that people were good before Kant. I think that is, if you think of the Inquisition, the Protestant Catholic wars in France and things like that, I just question whether religion really made people good or rather this was just a way of looking at it and say, well, We'll kind of whitewash the past as we move on. That that was the only point. Okay, beautiful, Matthew. So thank you for raising that um, because this is a game changer in Kant. Prior to Kant, what it meant to be good for, for most societies, well, let's just say Western society, was we know the good already. Now, do you do the good we all know? Post-Kant, what doing the good now means we have to decide what's actually good. 
it's not just obedience to the accepted notion of good. We have to decide what's good. And so Matthew raises a great question. Is it so true that people were doing the good before? Well, what he, with the change he sees, if we if we think being good means treating women as equal to men, if we think being good means treating a person of color as well as a white person, if we think being good means a whole bunch of other things that are taken for granted in 21st century America around not being a misogynist and not being a racist. I mean, these are like some of the highest good, right? Not being a homophobe and, uh, and fill in the blank, not being an anti-Semite, right? Then, of course, right, those people beforehand were not good by our regards. But what... But, the bag of virtues that they consider to be good, they saw things like loyalty and honesty and um, and um, people filling their role in society as good. And they see a move away from their defined good. People are going to church less. People are getting divorced more. People are, are less loyal as citizens to their king, right? They are, they're, they're changing what the, their moral behavior is in ways that we might view as progress, right? Um, so yeah, so thank you. But the other part I think he's raising there is that he believed, or I, I don't want to say he believed, there was an idea that one of the most powerful moral forces for our moral reasoning and behavior is the notion that we will be punished after this world for sins we do. That even if someone has no empathy at all for another human being, if they think God will hold them accountable for murder, if they think a Nazi has a different fate in the next world than a Jew killed in the Holocaust, if they think that if I steal but don't get caught, God will care, that will put people in check. And now that people are believing that less, they say, if I can get away with it, well, who cares? Right. If if I think it's right, even though the government does it and I can get away with it and, you know, um, I don't really care about the religious law. Who cares? And so he thinks that's a problem. And we're going to have to figure out a new way that people are going to care to do what's good, even if they're not going to get caught. OK, so, yeah, Matthew, I'm so glad you flagged that. Can okay. I jump in here really quickly just to throw this out okay, there? Um, let's work the round a little bit more. We'll I... come back to you. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll totally come back to you. Yeah. Okay. So I saw somebody else ha throw up a hand a moment ago, I think. Okay, Aglaia, nobody jumped in. So yes, please hop in. All right. Are you sure you want me to talk? Okay. Yeah, great. Yes. All right. All right. Just to throw this in there, okay, is that um, also when it comes to religion and making people good before Kant and everything like, well, first of all, no, it's not. <laughs> okay. Historically, religion has never made people quote unquote good though, but Considering the um, atmosphere of, you know, like um, the Lutheran parts of, you know, German territories, because Germany itself wasn't exactly Germany itself at that time, though. Um, a lot of the time you're going to see them thinking that, well, the Catholic Church messed up everything. And so they will never miss an opportunity to slam the Catholic Church for screwing things up. But they do believe that um, the Protestant Reformation was kind of a step in the right direction of rationalizing society. And so the thing is, is that if you're rationalizing society, and I mean, this is before Marx, so don't think I'm talking Marxist here, but the idea is that humanity has to learn certain lessons and that the Protestant Reformation is an important part. So they do believe that Protestantism, the Lutheran aspect, is a part of moving humanity to that, you know, to a better aspect, though. So religion is going to be crucial to it. 
However, though, you can't stop there. Okay. So that's all I wanted to, you right. do have to rationalize even further than that. So great. So. Great. Okay. Lot, lots, to, lot, lots to say there. Let's go to Gary, um, Gary Friedlander, then Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Just want to uh, move in a little different direction. Shmuley, I want to challenge you just a little bit when you mentioned that uh, that Judaism deals with the gray and not the not the black and white. Uh, but I don't see that at least in today, and I didn't see it historically, especially in in the Ortho community today and in the past when there was only Orthodox Jews. Is that uh, uh, I? I my mother was oh, it's so easy to be an Orthodox Jew, and my argument always was, you know, it's pretty black and white. I mean, they have rules and regulations for for everything, and they do a lot of praying. Uh, and and I think if you mentioned before that that hope is is a passive word, uh, and so praying is a passive word, but it doesn't necessarily always uh, move to to action. And I even see that uh, in generally today, there are many Orthodox Jews that are not that way, but uh, but I see it a lot more in the uh, more progressive movements where prayer is not as important, but the action is 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 more more important. So I, I wonder if you could comment on that. And the last thing I just want to bring in, you know, you talk about is it is is it is it in us to do the right thing, to move in action, uh, I think as Aglaia had, had mentioned. Uh, but I mean, I look at somebody like Miller, who was, uh, I don't remember his name, that was uh, in Trump's cabinet or advisors, that whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And he's anti-immigrant and he's anti this and that and the other thing. So I, I don't know. So I just thought I had to throw that Okay, in. good, Gary. To both your points, those are great points. And so... Um, to the point of gray area, um, yes. It, so it appears as if um, the Orthodox Jewish world lives in the world of black and whites. And in fact, it's largely true. And that is a real shift away from Talmudic Judaism, I think, um, which was very much about um, all these all these gray areas where a machlokit disagreements were not even resolved. Um and yet there's major segments of, of the Orthodox world that only want to give rules black and white. You give a, get a ruling from the rabbi and there is no wiggle room or gray. There's just kind of a black and white there. And to be sure, I think all of us, to some degree, look for that. Um, how many of us press our doctor, you know, when it's what they've said is not so clear. They said it could be this, could be that. Here's a percentage of this and percentage of that. You know, we say, yeah, but tell me, like, what's going to happen? You know, we want to know, right? We want to know the future. I mean, we're hardwired to want black and whites when when it comes to when it comes to how to live. Sometimes, in fact, uh, uh, many secular Jews also ask me questions that they want black and white answers. That they often press me. They say, oh, well, does Judaism believe in heaven and hell or not? I say, well, it's complicated. Do you want the 11th century Egyptian view or the 12th century Babylonian view? Do you want the 19th century German view or the 21st century view out of Cincinnati? You say, no, no, I want, look, just give me the straight thing. I say, no, no, there's no straight thing. There's a lot of gray there. And so theologically, there's gray. In normative practice, there's gray. Certainly in ethics, there's gray. And you're right. I think that that aspects... Um, uh, uh, cultural phenomena today that move us away from that into black and whites, I think, are ultimately a distortion. To your, to your second point, I think actually 
the reason Orthodox Judaism is thriving and liberal Judaism is dying in many ways is simply because of this notion of duty, right? Assimilation in the liberal Jewish world is rampant. Orthodox Judaism is growing. And I think one of the large reasons for that is the, the no, element of choice. Now, I'm, I, 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 I support choice, but Orthodoxy doesn't give you choice. They say, you got to do it. You got to do it. It doesn't matter what you feel like doing. It, it's not that you go to a Shiva minion because it's a nice thing to do or you care about the person or you're in a good mood. You feel up to it. You go because it's a mitzvah and you have to do it. And so duty becomes a significant factor in why Orthodox Jews do what they do. And um, a lack of duty um, is a significant factor in why liberal Jews do less of what they do. 50 years ago, conservative and reformed Jews felt an obligation to go to Kol Nidre. Today, the question is not, do I have to go? This is, do I want to go? And once the question is want to go versus have to go, a lot of people can say, I don't want to go. I, I don't feel obligated to go. And so I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just, it, it's a part of our of, of the culture today we have to contend with. Um, um, and it's interesting. One of the one of the leading reform theologians of the of the late 20th century, his name was Eugene Borovitz. And Borovitz wanted to reground Reform Judaism in a language of obligation because he thought Reform Judaism would ultimately die off if it didn't have a sense of obligation, if it was just built in choice. Today, Reform Judaism celebrates choice. You can be a Jew in this way and that way. You can choose the kind of Jew you want to be. So, okay, that's beautiful. That's powerful in an era where you could choose 5,000 different cereal boxes and 2,000 different laundry detergents. People want choice, but people also are going to need obligation to have a commitment, right? The notion of being married is not that you just choose to do what you want. You're obligated. You commit yourself to a person. So too, being a Jew means you commit yourself in some sense. And so, but to, back to Gary's point, what are those actions we feel a duty to? Now, uh, to your point around, let's say, standing up for, you know, causes we might care about, Yes, largely orthodoxy is not going to feel a duty to stand up for those causes in a way that liberal Jews will. So there we see a duty changes. Uh, uh, a liberal Jew may not feel compelled that they have to go hear the shofar because of the mitzvah of shofar, but they may feel compelled to show up at the climate change action because they feel a different sense of duty based on that or show up at a pro-choice rally, whereas they don't feel the need to make a Pesach Seder, Right. Whereas an Orthodox Jew says, climate change rally, that's not, where, where does it say that in the Shulchan Aruch? I got to go to Pesach. You know, it's a whole different, and this is part of our drifting divides. What is our duty today as 21st century American Jews? Okay. All right. Before we go to Toby, let's go to Cheryl, because we haven't heard Cheryl yet. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, this is just very, this occurred to me while through this, through your entire lecture. And I was thinking of, and then, and then kind of congealed when you said, about the gray area and everything. I was thinking of, of the basic idea of charitable giving. And uh, I, I, there's the eight levels, Maimonides has eight levels of giving. You know, giving unwillingly is the, the worst level. Giving anonymously and helping other, somebody else who needs help is the best. But the bottom line is, there's eight levels, so there's a gray area in there. If everyone would just give, I, I, I'm just talking about, I mean, I guess it, in, in Judaism, it seems that we're all compelled and urged a, a, to give in a different way than it is in other, in other religions or other sects or other, anything else. But I was just thinking about that, that 
if you give anonymously, then you are fulfilling then the hopes with the imperative that everyone will give anonymously. But the bottom line is everyone is giving. If everyone follows any of those eight things, which are all very gray, there's black, there's white, and then there's the gray area in between. And, you know, that just occurred to me while I was thinking about that. So great. Awesome. Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So cool. So I'm so glad you brought up Sadaka too. And, um, and, and to, and to build off the direction you're going in, I'm sure all of us take charity very seriously. Um, in fact, I know many of you do um, because I know you. Um, and, um, and, the, and the issue emerges around freedom versus obligation. Some people give because they're in, inspired in a moment or because somebody asks them. Um, and some people give because they have a plan. They have a plan for how they're gonna give, right? And you know, interesting enough, and I, I, I'm sorry if I offend anyone with a critique of a conservative notion of taxation here for a moment, but the average American donates between one to 2% um, at, at best, at best, um, with lots of exceptions. And that, that fluctuates and continues to go down. Charitable giving is going down by generation. And it turns out that that does not increase when taxation um, de decreases. The argument that we're going to address issues through charity rather than through government, um, I, I want to suggest, and I certainly welcome a pushback, um, is I think a flaw uh, uh, because the amount of taxation to address societal needs, education, um, and the sick and the elderly and fill in the blank of other many needs of policing and fire department and like the amount that's needed to sustain all those, if it relied on charitable giving, many of those systems would ultimately collapse. Um, and so, but when it comes to charitable giving, some people give by choice. I feel called to do so. Other people give because they have a 10% mandate. I, I feel committed to tithing or I have a commitment to each year, you know, giving in this way or that. I think it's a great test case around whether our Judaism is kind of built around more around choice or around obligation, how we think about our charitable giving on an annual, on an annual basis. Okay. All right. Um, so, okay. Uh, Toby, we're over to you. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, I'm going to follow up on something on a concept that you just talked about, whether it is, whether behaving charitably or behaving, doing the right thing, let's just call it doing the right thing. And I'm going to get a, a step away from the religious aspect of it. I'm sure there, in all religions, there is some aspect of trying to get people to do the right thing, but I'm going to step away from that. The average person who, do, because church, church going and, and synagogue going has, has been going down. You know, I mean, people don't go as much as they used to. And whether that reflects that they don't do the right thing as much as they don't show up to synagogue, I don't know. But the bottom line is there are a whole lot of people who aren't religious and who've had no, no upbringing in doing the right thing, quote unquote. So you've got a ton of people around the world. And, you know, let's just even stick to the U.S. There's a bunch of people who say, look, I'm only interested in how it's going to serve me. Is this decision that I'm going to make going to be good for me? And in, in I, you know, in this, in I don't want to get political either, but the bottom line is this administration that we had previously, there are a bunch of people who said, um, I don't care what the right thing is. Slavery served a purpose and uh, it's just fine. And I don't think we need to make any reparations or any kind of, because it was history and it's not me and I don't care. You can rationalize pretty much anything. So my expectation of people doing the right thing is 
pretty low, especially after, you know, all these shootings and stuff. I want to be positive, especially during this season. But honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss. Okay, good. Uh, anyone want to jump off from where Toby uh, led us here? Yes. Hi, Sarah. Oh, Sarah, I missed you earlier. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I put my hand down because you Oh, oh that's why. That's why. Okay. Yeah. You spoke a lot about what I was saying, which goes along with what Toby's saying about um, that whole notion of deontology uh, doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's like right thing. Um, sometimes that's a big R right thing. And sometimes those of us who are big L are doing our left thing. And so an overall notion of doing the right thing, your idea, which I subscribe to of these goods, these highest goods are not universal. Not everyone believes that LGBTQ plus rights are the best thing for our society or that women should have a right to what happens with their own bodies or that any of us should have a right to choose what we do with our bodies. So the notion of the right thing is really nebulous. And I think of societies where the right thing is taking what is available because mm -hmm. it is available and we are an oppressed people. And so we will take because it's there. And that's how our whole culture has moved forward through millennia. So they, these are these are all really lofty goals. And, and as Toby's saying, they're based on our individual needs and how we act in the society is what we hope a, a healthy culture will enculturate into its people. But I don't have a lot of hope for that looking at our current culture. Um, and we can only pray. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so there's a lot there about how how far does this really move us forward if we're looking to, you know, rehabilitate ethics, we're willing to do what we can to inspire kindness to reemerge for people to live with deeper empathy and compassion. Does this really get us anywhere? Firstly, because ethics is complicated and there's so many different approaches. Secondly, because every situation is different. No situation is the same and requires lots of details. Thirdly, because even if I'm charged towards duty, does that necessarily get actualized the way I want? As we said, America's totally split, split on pro-life versus pro-choice, on gun control versus gun rights, on trans rights versus um, whatever the opposite of trans rights is. Um, and so fill in the blank on a whole host of issues where um, people feel it's their duty to speak out in terms of what they think is right. And so does does having a duty that everyone should do what I think uh, what I think is right get us really anywhere at all? 
um, we're going to need a whole bunch more tools to actually navigate something like that. And sadly, we've entered an era in America where people have no idea what the other side is even talking about anymore. I mean, literally, like, like it's like they're from a different planet, you know, um, the, 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 the political discourse in terms of what our duty is as, as an American. Um, and, and so does Kant advance our current moment in any way at all? Okay, who have we not heard from who might want to hop in? Oh, yes. Hi, Ed. Good morning. And in the interest of transparency, I'm not Jewish. So I see out of this conversation, particularly in ethics, a um, similarity to the Pope and the edict that this is right and this is wrong and the need to have that or the want to have that. However, I'm very impressed with that statement uh, that some have mentioned already that instead of being black and white, Judaism is all about the gray area. And I think from all of the statements and discussions, that is the case because in my mind, when we talk about good versus evil, the definition of good and bad are not necessarily consistent individual to individual, or even groups of individuals. So it reminds me of at least what I think I understand, the development of Musara and these definitions of traits like humility. We talk about compassion and humility as though everybody knows what it is. Yet they spent a good deal of time trying to figure out a definition. And what they started with, I think, was the extremes. This is definitely humility. This is definitely not. But what they ended up with is there's a whole continuum between those extremes. And it depends on the person and the situation what their experiences have been. And it came down to, at least when I was taking the course, that you do have to act, you know, between the weeks of, that we met, uh, say, humility, um, you did have to practice it in some way or another. And I think what was happening was I was having a difficult time trying to define what is good and bad. And I think we all kind of came to the conclusion that, well, it depends and it depends. And so we landed in this gray area, you know, well, if a murder is happening right in front of us, um, you know, what do we do? Um, do we give or our, our, our risk our life? Uh, so I like this conversation that is going on that in my mind is basically saying, I don't think there is a consistent definition yet of those extremes, let alone the fact that there is a continuum at least between those extremes where people might land. Um, so I think it's going to be not only difficult, 
but I think it also puts the sort of responsibility back on the individual to say, this is what I think is good, despite what's going on. And that's how I will live my life. Great, Ed, I, that is a great point. And the gray area can either lower the bar or raise the bar for us. It can lower us and say, ah, nobody knows what's right and wrong anymore anyways, let's go have a sandwich. Or it can raise the bar and say, oh my gosh, I've got to work harder. I can't just go to the Pope or to my rabbi and have them tell me what, what I got to do in a black and white world or open up a text and the text is going to tell me. I've got to work through this, raising the bar. But Ed, I, I, I love how you opened your comments uh, that you're you know saying you're not Jewish um, and then teaching us all Musar after that was just was just lovely, of course. So it's always a delight to have you with us. And, you know, one of the one of the ways that Kant is influenced by Christianity is that Christianity largely is universalistic. It, it wants to shape the world. Judaism is largely not universalistic. It doesn't try to speak to what the world should do. It could only speak to what Jews should do. Um, and I think that Kant is looking for a universalistic ethic, whereas um, Judaism can't even attempt to, to reach for that, given all these kind of all these particulars that you touched on, the subjectivity, the situations, the complexity, all the various dynamics that one has to look into. And so I think if the, one of the best we can do is rather than, um, you know, just making perfect black and white choices is live with moral regret. Now, what I mean by moral regret here is, is that we regret we can't make the choice that we're that we still are not going to make. I'm still going to make the choice I think is best, but I regret that I can't make the other choice too because I see this area is so gray that I see the other choice has merit also. And so that's a good conclusion point here for today as we move towards the high holidays, those who of us who engage with that, that we shouldn't be filled with guilt, right? We shouldn't be motivated by guilt. And, um, and unfortunately, a, a lot of the holidays can, can promote an anxiety and a guilt type of experience, but rather um, understand that life is gray and complicated and um, there's not simple answers, and that shouldn't, um, you know, sort of paralyze us into a into a realm of guilt, but help us be gentle with ourselves and see that we're all doing our best in a messy world. Each of us is enough um, and is striving to be enough in the world and do enough. And yes, we can all grow, but we're also perfect. Even while we can do teshuva and transform ourselves to be better, we're already perfect as we are as well. And so. Um, I think that's what I, one of the many reasons I love learning with you all is that we're all striving to learn and grow on the next level. And yet um, we're also gentle with each other, each other and the complexity of everything we're looking at here together. So friends, next week we are going to move into Jeremy Bentham. I look forward to talking about Jeremy Bentham with you next week. I'm sorry there were some, there were some things typed in the chat we didn't get to, but um, as always, I love learning from you all. So thank you for all you shared and those who um, share sometimes and not other times, that's also great. Have a wonderful day.